0: Normally, it's the movies that spawn the toy line. So what happens when it's the toy line that spawns the movie? Throw in the fact that the movie was also being made by the company that was able to do what Lex Luthor and General Zod couldn't. Kill Superman. By the power of Skull, I have the power to talk about Masters of the Universe and say guess what? It's not that bad. <laughs> Welcome, welcome, welcome to this edition of It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A-grades and B-movies. Welcome to the show. We have a fun one for you today because we're going all superhero like. Not not like Marvel superhero, not like DC superhero, but like classics, you know, Saturday morning cartoon superhero from the 80s. We are talking 1987's Masters of the Universe and already I can hear you cringing. Just, just ever so much because you can hear Dolph Lundgren's voice, emoting, if you will, possibly. Well, we'll get we'll get to that in a little bit later. On the show today, my wife Carrie has returned from Destiny. Turns on the radio. I told you I was going to pick the next movie. You weren't going to like it. Carrie, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Jay. How are you doing?
0: I am good. I am good. Um, okay, so as i mentioned i was the one who got to pick this movie this week um i'll admit when this movie came out of course you know it's 1987 i was years old um and i'll admit i i liked it i enjoyed it at the time and it's one of those things too where you know obviously when you go back and watch things that you watched when you were a kid you know they're not always as good as you thought they were uh the movie *Crawl* comes to mind. I loved *Crawl* as a kid. But, you know, you go back and watch it and you go, oh, oh, I would guess I was a kid. But in the wake of Netflix releasing the Masters of the Universe uh, Revelations, uh, the, the one that Kevin Smith did, people crapped on that hard. And I think it's one of those things where you have to almost go back and watch the 87 film and realize, no, Kevin Smith actually didn't make a bad series. Like, it's... It's not that bad.
1: I agree. I mean, okay, first of all, when you pitched Masters of the Universe, I was like, my nine-year-old heart was a flutter. Um, now, fun fact, I only just saw this movie yesterday. So when I say that, it was not the real-life He-Man. It was my growing-up cartoon crush on the animated He Man, from watching He Man and the Masters of the Universe.
0: Now, were you crushing on He Man or were you crushing on Prince Adam?
1: Oh, He Man! Oh, of course. right. Of course, the the you know, blonde hair and no, no yeah. one
0: no one crushed on pink on pink Prince Adam from the eighties cartoon. <laughs> but if you're sitting here going, I have no idea what He Man is, let, let's give you a little bit of a rundown of what the movie is. It is time to trailerize it. The fantastic exploits of He-Man and his arch-rival, the evil Skeletor, are brought to the big screen for the first time in this live-action adventure. He-Man must free a beautiful sorceress who has been captured by Skeletor, and the incredible war between these ultimate forces of good and evil has the time and space of all the universe as its background. Okay, so that's a little bit of a rundown. Of course, like, very trailerized version rundown of it. But it gave you the idea of kind of what you were dealing with. So let's get into the background of this. As I mentioned before, it was released in 1987. And just to give you an idea of what movies were like in 1987, at least as far as geekery goes, um, 1987, were a year past Transformers the movie that came out. 87 also saw the G.I. Joe animated movie, and Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, which was actually the same company that did Masters of the Universe, Canon Films. And we are going to go into a whole lot of Canon Films. But the same time they were doing Masters of the Universe, they were doing Superman 4. Um, and it starred Dolph Lundgren. If you don't know who Dolph Lundgren is, shame on you, go watch Rocky Four. IV. Ivan Drago is your man It also starred Frank Langella as Skeletor, uh, Chelsea Field as Tila John Seifer as man-at-arms and a young Courtney Cox straight off of her misfits of science TV show this was actually her first major motion picture that she's that she had ever done as mentioned before is made by Canon films um, if you've ever heard of the names Golan Globus they are responsible so you know who to point fingers at for movies like the American ninja movies the missing in action movies, the Death Wish sequels, uh, Cobra and Over the Top for all you Alone fans. And they are the ones who brought us the ultimate break into electric boogaloo. If you ever wondered where electric boogaloo came from, it came from the people that brought us 87 Dolph Lundgren Master of the Universe. The best way I can describe canon films is they were kind of like the asylum Their day they would take these properties and just like pump it out, not really necessarily caring about um quality as the case were. Um, you know, so it was very much like they would just pump all these movies out and hope that something would stick, hope they'd have that sharknado type, you know, flash in the pan type success. They promoted this as the Star Wars of the 80s, which I find kind of backwards because. You know, Star Wars fans will realize that Empire Strikes Back came out in nineteen eighty. Return of the Jedi came out in eighty three. So there was already a Star Wars of the eighties. It was also directed by Gary Goddard. He's the creator, uh, creator and writer of the Captain Power TV series. And of course, after this, he would also do videos for the the Terminator two ride, not the movie, the ride, uh, the Jurassic Park ride, and the Star Trek the Experience. Like so, this is a guy who, like, this is basically. His only theatrical movie director credit. He's he'd done stuff afterwards, but it was all for like experiences and rides at the theme park. So you know when you're waiting in line for like ever, you know. We we've been to Disney, we've been to Universal, we've been to those rides, and it's a
1: small, small world. Oh dear God. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, right now there is a traumatized population out there that have been in line for the "It's a Small World" and have gone through that, and they're just all of a sudden all the all the memories of
1: "It's a Small World" after
0: all. Oh dear God, yeah.
1: So for clarification, because I did check him out the um, the T two three D Battle Across Time. That's a ride.
0: It's a ride.
1: And he was a writer for it. Is that like yeah. the pre-movie? Um, yeah, so, when you're, movie? so,
0: so when, you know, when you're waiting in line and they've got like the screens up or you're in the waiting room and they play the video just before you go on to the ride. Yeah, he did that. Someone actually gets paid to direct those things. Because, of course, like as, as you're sitting in line in the ride, you know, while you're waiting countless hours upon hours to get into the, especially on a busy day. You know, they've got uh, these videos that are produced in order to be able to get you into the mood for the ride. Yeah, and to get you over and over again as you go back because your kids want to do the ride over and over again. Yeah, so basically he went from Masters of the Universe to doing the T2 3D ride, Jurassic Park ride, and Star Trek The Experience. Um, I don't know if it's still in Vegas or not. We were, we were there when we went to to Vegas before. Like, we got to do the Star Trek Experience. So, the videos that they were showing, he did those.
1: See, that just makes me wonder if... I mean, that's a long stretch to not have any credits, any Hollywood credits to your, to your name. So, it kind of makes me wonder if he pulled, like, the Alan Smithy card and... Mm-hmm. Perhaps, like I don't know, went that route because, or what was was a curse over him or made upon him that he would never work in Hollywood again.
0: I I don't know. I honestly don't know. And it, but it's one of those things where if this is you know, and it was his directorial debut, you know, and it was the only theatrical release that he did, you know, do you do you sit there and go, you know, oh, he wouldn't have been that bad a director. Or but he wasn't. And we're gonna get into that because he actually, you know, in there's there's a documentary about canon films called Electric Boogaloo. There's that there's that term again, Electric Boogaloo. Um and there's a clip in there, and I can't remember if it was from uh, Menahem Golan or Joran Globus in the in the film. The, those are the two guys behind canon films, and they said I would never make a movie for $30 million. I wouldn't know what to do with $30 million. I could make 30 movies for a million dollars. That kind of gives you the idea of their idea of budgeting for films. So for a director to have to deal with a budget like that and deal with a massive property, because let's be honest, Masters of the Universe in the 80s was a massive property to deal with. And if you're going to do a big budget, you know, movie on a toy line that that has such fantastical backstory to it, you need a budget. You need a budget and you need to make it big. You cannot do it on a shoestring budget. And yet somehow the director did. So, you know, we're going to get to that in a little bit. Uh, it was also written by David Odell. Now, David Odell is uh, the screenplay writer of Supergirl, not Superman. Supergirl and the dark crystal. So you know, there's some Hollywood, you know, back, you know, back credit to that. Um, now when this came out, it came out the same weekend as um stakeout with uh oh, I can't remember I'm blanking on who's in stakeout, but it, it debuted at number three when it came out behind stakeout and the living daylight. So I mean If you're going up against James Bond, you're probably going to lose, but it didn't do that bad as far as like that opening weekend. We talked about budget at a $22 million, reportedly a $22 million budget. It only domestically made $17.3 million in the box office. So it's a money loser. You knew it was going to be a money loser because of, and there are so many stories behind the making of this film that you sit there and go, oh dear God, how did they even make it through? But let's get to the Rotten Tomato score. 17% tomato meter with a 40% audience score. So clearly the He-Man fandom stands behind this movie. Now, before we do the breakdown, first watch, because this was your first time watching this all the way through, even though I had to like, you know, bump you with my elbow a little bit just to keep you awake. Um, is it that bad?
1: It's not that bad, actually. Um, if you would have asked me last night, before you know, I struggled to keep my eyes open um, during the most pivotal fight scene uh, at the end. The answer might have been different. However, I, in in kind of stepping away from it, kind of digesting it, reliving the memories of of, of what I saw last night. It wasn't truly. It wasn't that bad. Um, I can, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll get into later my favorite parts of the movie. However, um, I think at the time that it was released, um, it, it would be very much what you would expect of an '80s action superhero movie, right? It was, um, I think, actually. I, I know I'm going to probably never live this down, but I would say, as far as Star Wars versus Masters of the Universe, I think I might have maybe enjoyed Masters of the Universe more.
0: You, 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 you went there! I think so! <laughs> you went there! I did. Right now, there are people literally looking at their phones or looking at the computer, yep. going, "Did she just say that?" I know. Um, I know. I am shocked. <laughs> oh, you got some defending to do, girl. I'm ready. Oh dear God! All right, bring it. <laughs> so, so in your opinion, though, the 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 fans have it right more so than the critics. You're you're siding with the forty percent over the seventeen percent.
1: Absolutely. Okay. I, I think they were unfairly. Um, Unfairly treated by the critics, I, I think. Um, I mean, did it deserve you know over fifty percent? Probably not. Um, there's still a lot, you know, to be. <laughs> there's there's a lot of wiggle room there, but.
0: Masters it wasn't of the Universe over Star Wars, that
1: though. bad, yeah. That's a,
0: that's a bold statement right there. It is. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a bold statement right there. Oh, yep. right right now, there, yep. there there was someone sitting there listening to this going, I'm going to kick a jaw off of you for saying that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh,
1: yep. Plus, I've got my He Man figurine uh, in the place where, you know. Luke Skywalker
0: would. Yep. Yep. You can't. yeah <laughs> Dear listeners, you cannot see the face that I am making at my wife right now. It is one of shock and bewilderment. <laughs> that I don't even know this woman anymore. Yep. Luke Skywalker can kick, kick a Prince Adam ass. Let me tell you. <laughs> okay. So let's let's get to the acting. Acting notes. Who have you got as actually being not that bad in? The Star Wars of the 80s, Masters of the Universe.
1: Okay, well, my first on my list is James Stuart Tolkien as Detective Lubrick. Um, Okay, from Top Gun fame, you know, he is always known for playing the the tough guy. I, I, I look at this actor and, you know, like I could be watching any movie and I'll be like... Oh, Oh, it's him! Just you know, to see like his shiny little head on come on screen, and it's like, yes, oh, shit's about to go down. <laughs>
0: the, the quintessential '80s hard ass. Not necessarily, not necessarily the authoritarian figure. The hard ass. Occ- occasionally, he's the authoritarian figure. He. And it's one of those things. He's that kind of character actor that they would always slot in. Like, okay, we need a hard ass. We're going to we're going to call James Tolback. We 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 need a copper. We need a we need a military sergeant. We're going to call Michael Ironside. You know, we need someone to push some buttons on this console and then say about two or three lines. We're going to call Clint Howard. Those are the kind of guys that you could always rely on. And yeah, James Tolback was very much in the 80s. You needed a school principal you call him.
1: Well, he is the only actor, I think, that, um, you know, he, he says, no, you stay here in that burning building. And, you know, yeah, I'm damn well staying right where I am. Like, yeah, if <laughs> if he tells you to do something, you do it.
0: I'm going to get a, make a time machine, and I'm going to go back in time to the 80s, and I'm going to make a film. I'm going to make a horror film, okay? And just at that pivotal moment where the kids in the house that you know it's haunted and you know the serial killer is going to come and get them, I'm going to have James Tolback just, like, knock on the door, go, you kids get out of here now. It's haunted. You're going to die if you don't. Every, every doomed horror movie victim would be saved by James Tolbach.
1: <laughs> he could save the entire industry.
0: Um, who else you got?
1: Um, You know what? Billy Barty as Gwil- Gwildor. Gwyldor, am I saying Gildor. that?
0: get Discount Orko. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get why they didn't do Orko. You know, when, if you think about the Masters of the Universe, um, you know, Orko was the floating wizard that would just, like, fly about, make bad jokes, and occasionally try to do some magic. Um, in 1987, that character's hard to pull off. You know, so having Gwildor there uh, as your... You know, basically technology-based Orco, I kind of get it. And Billy Barty, like, I, I don't know what it is about his voice, but every time you hear it, you just believe that he's going to be able to create something that's going to save the day. Like his Billy Barty is the is the MacGuffin voice of movies. I'm I'm totally fine with that. Um, can we also agree that in 1987 there was no actor on the planet. That is the physical resemblance of He-Man himself other than Dolph Lundgren.
1: Okay, can we just talk about that for a second? And (laughs) yes, I am going to probably, you know... Eat my words, as I did with the Star Wars reference. I was like, However, you said, said "Master um, of the
0: Universe" is better than Star Wars. You'd I mean, <laughs> be, be hard hard pressed to top that right now. All hmm. right,
1: wait for it. Oh, um, hold God. my beer, okay? <laughs> I got my popcorn because <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to objectify Dolph Lundgren and uh, and say, you know what, physicality wise or physically, he was He Man. Um, but as far as his acting skills um okay so the he-man that I always kind of pictured you know uh in real life from watching the cartoon all right you you can't show up with this like well-oiled physique and um and and just flash a smile and everything's gonna be okay and then you start waving your sword around and and you win the battle um it 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 was okay so watching Dolph Lundgren as He-Man was kind of like thank god he had his team behind him leading him through you know the this 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 entire film, but leading him, you know, uh, to to the battle uh, to defend uh, Castle Greyskull because he was kind of like the Harry Potter to... <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, just kind of being led around by his friends from you know one challenge to the other. It you, was kind you of you do
0: realize that makes man at arms Ron Weasley and <laughs> Tila the Hermione of the He-Man trio.
1: Very much so. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I mean, like as far as um, delivery of lines, okay. You know, like there's a lot of there's a lot of uh you know critic talk about of how uh, the editing process and you know how many retakes they had to do or how many chances he had to redo his lines post production mm-hmm. um
0: G- given a canon films budget to deal with
1: okay that aside i'm sorry but you can't just like flash the pearl you know you can't fl- <laughs> you can't flash your smile your pearly whites and just like not deliver some kind of believable
0: line for a superhero. Admittedly, you know, his grasp of, you know, of English wasn't, you know, as good as it is now. You know, if you watch Dolph Lundgren now, you know, whether it's The Expendables or whether it's, you know, his role in Aquaman, you know... He's come a long way from the days of you know Ivan Drago and 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 He Man. So you know there's 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 a lot of leeway given. Um, I think the only way you could have at least matched the physicality of you know of of the specimen that is He Man um, would be to go to the WWE or at least the WWF at the time, and you know maybe gotten. A Paul, Mr. Wonderful Orndorf, or, you know, I, 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 you want to say Hulk Hogan, you know, cause there's, there's the 24 inch pythons brother. He would have physically met it and you know, he would have delivered the lines, but I think it's one of the things where if they put Hulk Hogan in as He-Man. You wouldn't get past the fact that you all, you were just waiting for the moment where, you know, He-Man would pop on screen going, I'm going to knock you down, brother. Like,
1: yeah, and, and two, he would have had to lose the handlebar mustache, so that would, it just would have never worked.
0: Yeah, no, that that's, yeah.
1: No, and I, I completely appreciate the whole typecasting thing. It's just, like I said, visually, Dolph Lundgren was the perfect choice. Mm-hmm. But, and it wasn't even necessarily the accent, it was, or even line delivery, it was definitely just, and I think this is actually more, I would blame the director of photography, that the shots that they used, you know, at a pivotal scene, and it's like, you'll see a close-up of his face, and you know, he just flashes a smile and it's like, no, 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 He-Man should literally stay in character of, you know, a superhero that's about to take down Skeletor. Like,
0: it, it should be noted, though. He
1: shouldn't be so happy you know, about it.
0: So so fans of like the old 80s cartoon and even like even the new Kevin Smith one, they know that Prince Adam is is He-Man and they know that as soon as he pulls the sword out and says, I have the power, he becomes He-Man, Right. He spends the entire movie as He-Man. We don't get a Prince Adam in this film, which is, it's a bold move, right? But I wonder if it's one of those things where they have to sit there and say, are we going to spend the money on doing the sword? I have the power change from Prince Adam. You know, it's not like, you know, you take a look at Captain America and you saw the transformation, you know, not on screen, but, you know, from you know, wimpy, you know, Steve Rogers to, you know, jacked up with the super soldier serum, Steve Rogers, you know, they didn't have that back then. So, you know, it kind of makes sense that we don't get a Prince Adam, but you know, it's, you know, it it, it was a bold move.
1: I don't think it would have fit into their storyline. I mean, there was really no, like, you know, why not pitter patter, let's get at her and get right to the story and right to the chase. There
0: wasn't a Prince Adam moment.
1: No, no, there really wasn't. And I don't think it needed that. Um, But I think as far as Courtney Cox, um, who, don't get me wrong, big Friends fan. That's Mm -hmm. my disclaimer. However, and I also appreciate this was her first movie, um, big screen movie, but uh, if if a bulking He-Man shows up in a back alley and swoops you up and tries to carry you away, you might want to put a little more, I don't know. Fear. Fear (laughs) (laughs) Um, into your delivery. I mean, it was almost kind of like, oh, hi. You know, like. The power of the lady motor. I don't know if she was (laughs) taken by him quite literally and carried away or, you know, like, there was really no, no, like, oh my god, who are you and who are they and what is happening? It was just kind of like, okay, I accept this and let's move on.
0: Half-naked buff guy gonna carry me over to safety. Sure, I'll buy that. (laughs)
1: Okay, good with that.
0: (laughs) Um, can we also just accept the fact that Frank Langella as Skeletor was just all worlds of 80s evil villain goodness.
1: He was fantastic. And I mean, mad respect too when I was reading about why he chose to do the role and it was because his son watched or was a big fan of um, the He-Man Masters of the Universe story. Um, the cartoon series? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and so, you know, he was offered the role and he's like, yes, Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And the funny thing is, as you're reading up on kind of like the behind the scenes stuff, like Frank Langella, because his son was such a big He-Man fan, he put his all into that film. I think it's almost like one of those things where you sit there and go, if anyone, you know, carried this film all the way through, it's Frank Langella. But I mean, it's one of those things where you have to realize that when it comes to superhero films or, you know, hero adventure type stuff, the hero really is kind of bland as hell. The villain is who you tune in for. If you think about any superhero movie, right? It's not like, oh, hey, we get a Spider-Man film. The first thing you ask is, great, who's Spider-Man fighting? Because you care about who the villain is because the villain kind of dictates how good the movie is going to be. And anytime a superhero... Here's here's my bold line here. Anytime a superhero movie has failed, it's because the villain sucks. Whether it's the actual um like like the casting of the villain or the backstory of the villain or the or the portrayal or the difference from the from the source material of the villain. Superhero movies live and die by the quality of their villains. And in this case, Masters of the Universe stuck the landing because Frank Langella is Skeletor. As much as I love Mark Hamill and his voice, anytime Mark Hamill puts his voice to anything, speaking of Star Wars of the 80s, anytime Mark Hamill puts his voice to anything, I am signed on and ready to go. And him voicing Skeletor in the Kevin Smith series, I was like, oh my God, that's perfect. Frank Langella made this movie. Despite everything else that probably went on with the production, he soaked up every scene.
1: Okay, can we just talk about that for a second? Because, again, this was my first time watching it last night. Very late in the evening. Couldn't keep my eyes open. Except, what I did take away from the movie was the dynamic between Evelyn and Skeletor. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to ask you, was there an underlying romance? Was Evelyn trying to get Skeletor's approval of... And the way I I see Skeletor is this narcissistic evil dictator of Greyskull, of, you know... um, (laughs) So, was she really... Just trying to get his attention. I think,
0: you know... What's I, her story? Okay, so so f- as I was doing my, my, my notes for this, um, Meg Foster, who played Evil Lynn, uh, actually came out and said that that when she was prepping for the role of Evil Lynn, she used Lady Macbeth's storyline as kind of like the motivation. Um, but as you watch it and you deal with, you know, because Batman the Animated Series was made in the 90s, so it wasn't around when Masters of the Universe um, was around, at least when the movie came out, but take away the manicness of it, and you have a very much, and the way Mick Foster played it, by the way, she was brilliant too, she was absolutely brilliant, Um, Harley Quinn If you think about how much Harley Quinn does in order to gain the the attention and the affection of the Joker, only to realize that the Joker only gives a damn about himself. And no matter what Harley Quinn does, Joker's never going to appreciate her. That is Meg Foster's evil Lynn. She is trying her best to do whatever she can for Skeletor. And you saw at the end of the film, by the way, full disclaimer here the movie came out in 1987 if you haven't seen it by now screw you go watch the movie um, that would have
1: been me two days ago exactly by the way.
0: but you watch the movie now so we're good yeah you know at the end like the the big fight scene at the end happens and all of a sudden it's like oh she bails she leaves him high and dry defend for himself while fighting he- man that's the moment that's the moment when Harley Quinn realizes that the joker is never going to love her. No matter what she does, she will never be a part of his, you know, attention or, you know, his priorities. So bail. Just bail. So Evil Lynn, as played by Meg Foster in 1987, is Harley Quinn.
1: And for a moment, let's just talk about those eyes. That was literally, I think, the...
0: Those are her natural eyes. The
1: key to her landing that role.
0: She has said in interviews in the past that, you know... I know when they were filming, they were talking about maybe giving her contacts, but they're like, no, 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 no. You know, that, 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 those, she, she has said she brings her own special effects to oh, a movie. Yeah. So, you know, she, she, she's a budget saver right there. But yes, it very much what she had the perfect look. She had the perfect demeanor. She carried like her, her screen presence in this film. Again, the bad guys make the film and you know, Meg Foster and Frank Langella. You know, forget all the other goons that were there. Forget Blade. Forget you know all the the random you know lizard type creatures or whatnot. Forget Discount Beast Man. You know,
1: the amount of teddy bear fur that was no doubt used by the costume
0: department. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was the world's most fantastical furry convention.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I, I completely agree what you're saying about the. Um, it's the villain that has to make the movie. I mean, come on, Jarrett Leto's Joker. Oh, God. Right? Yeah, no. So, you know, 100%, you are completely right there. And, um, I mean, definitely, I think the two actors, the two characters, just, they had that evil dynamic, that mm-hmm. that, that excellent but, relationship but not- of, like, who can be the baddest.
0: And you know what's funny? is that Mick Foster, you know, did very subtly while Frank Langella was just eating up the scenery. You know, if, if you think back to, and I'm going to make another Batman reference here. You know, before it was all Star Wars references, now we're making Batman references for this whole thing. Um, if you think about uh, Batman Forever, you know, the the one where Val Kilmer was Batman, and you had Jim Carrey as the Riddler, and you had Tommy Lee Jones as as two-face and it's almost like the two of them were trying to out crazy each other which you know for tommy lee jones to try and out crazy jim carrey right that's a that's a tall order <laughs> No, when you're out of your league there but the thing is you had two characters that were both trying to be over the top and it made it camp it made it like you know it heralded you know, the difference between the Schumacher Batman era and the Tim Burton Batman era. But, you know, the fact that Meg Foster played it so subtle and so, not silent per se, but very methodical that you sit there and think every move she makes is, you know, By design.
1: Well, let's be honest, it was very painful for her to move. Mm -hmm. Uh, A 45-pound costume that um, she was physically getting bruises by her amount of hardware. She she couldn't sit. Right. She physically could not sit, and the way that she had to carry herself um, physically to not hurt herself in that costume, I think actually made the role like it was she was very um her posture was very straight and almost kind of like it, it looked painful to move <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. uh and she hit it well which is good yeah. I, I also need to give a shout out to john cypher he was the guy who played man at arms um you know we, we spent all this time talking about like how good the villains were and while you know i i, I enjoyed i enjoyed chelsea field as tila um and, of course, we've talked about Dolph Lundgren. I think with John Cipher, you know, first of all, let's be honest. He-Man is, it's a sword and sorcery thing, right? It was always been about magic and fighting with swords. And and there was a whole lot of guns and robots in He-Man, Masters of the Universe. You know, so, you know, it's a, it's a departure from what fans of the cartoon were known for. But Man-at-Arms always was that, you know, not a father figure because, of course, Prince Adam's father was the king, um, but always a you know a very paternalistic, almost like that doting uncle kind of character to He-Man. And here it's very much like, yes, you get like the you know the the military background because Man at Arms, of course, is you know like the the, the military leader to to Eternia, um, and I think John Cipher brought that. Uh, that not i can't say gravitas because it's freaking masters of the universe but he brought almost like that that calm mature um just the presence you know the kind of presence where you sit there and go if he says i need to go here and then do this and do this i'm going to do it because he's thought of every single plan and the fact that he came to masters of the universe from hill street blues Right. So there is that authoritarian kind of background to his characters already. So he brought that to this and I think it worked well.
1: I agree. I agree. I mean, um, I think having that strength of character on He-Man's team was definitely a benefit.
0: Mm-hmm. And I mean, I did like the the, the play between... Um, Chelsea Field, Tila, and, and, and Man-at-Arms. Of course, Tila is Man-at-Arms' daughter. So they had a very paternalistic relationship too because, you know, you know Man-at-Arms is trying to, to to train Tila to kind of like take take his job kind of thing somewhere down the road and, you know, make her tough and show her the right way to do things, I think. And, and yeah, like the two of them played off each other very well. It's almost like you could have put those two, you know, take Ron and Hermione, put them out there, and they're going to solve it, right? You know? <laughs> You you're the one who made the Harry Potter reference, so
1: yeah, exactly, and that's kind of where I was I was going with that is like, okay, you get this trio of characters, and you definitely have you know the the one leading the charge, and then the one taking care of everything along the way, and then you've got He Man smiling really big and uh, <laughs> just kind of showing up and. You know, taking everyone out with his sword. Which, by the way, can we just talk about... So, when this movie came out, um, it was no doubt um, promoted as a, as a family movie you want to take your kids to it but I think the downfall is that the amount of gun violence that you had mentioned Mm -hmm. um, a lot of you know parents maybe thought it would be too violent Um, I think what is it the kill count is at like 43 but it was mostly you know Skeletor's troops which very much in line with Star Wars Mm -hmm. Um, you know I mean I didn't find as as a parent and as a movie buff I didn't find that it was overly violent I think I would let the kids watch it because in comparison to some things that they might have seen today, you know, it wasn't it wasn't that bad. It just wasn't, um, you know, and again, it kind of maybe lost something with the amount of guns as opposed to, like, swordplay. I,
0: I mean, I don't have a problem with, you know, the lasers and the robots kind of thing. And I know that's very much like, you know, uh, like an 80s trope. We don't want to see people dying in you know, uh, in, in uh, a movie that kids are going to see. So kill the robots, you know, like that, take a look at Stormtroopers, right? These were basically like off-brand Stormtroopers. But
1: they never hit anything.
0: So they were sort more on-brand than they were off-brand. Um, but, you know, let's take a look at some of those kids' movies that came around that time. I remember 1986 going to see Transformers, the movie, in the theater, and they killed Optimus Prime, like when you're when you're years old and you're in the movie theater and you're watching the greatest leader of your Saturday morning cartoon life, and they offed him, like and it was it was harsh. Like you listen to that Vince DiCola soundtrack, like don da 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 don It's like it's like. Kill Optimus Prime, I'm not crying, you're crying. It's like, so, I mean, it's, you know, if you compare Masters of the Universe to, like, how, and then, like, even further in Transformers the movie, Starscream is straight up like tossing his Megatron out the starship and Unicron's changing him and he's screaming as he's being changed to Galvatron. Like, there is so much where you sit there and go, oh, dear God, how was I not traumatized by Transformers the movie as a child? Which, now that I'm talking about it, I think I was traumatized by Transformers the movie as a child. Masters of the Universe is not that. It's very kid-friendly. and like, It was
1: very campy. Oh, God, violence. Yes. I mean, you know... Even during the time to say that it was too violent to become a family movie, I don't know if I buy that.
0: I really don't. I think there's a lot of stigma that came with being made by canon films. You know, again, take Breakin' and Breakin' to Electric Boogaloo aside, okay? Where we're, you know, we're all gonna dance to save the rec hall and Electric Boogaloo. You know, take the Superman three and four that they did aside. Um, Especially... We're definitely not going to talk about Superman 4... Unless it gets its own episode. The Death Wish sequels. Missing in Action. Cobra. Like... Um, the American Ninja movies. Like... Go back and watch them now. And yeah, there's a whole lot of camping. you sit there and go... Okay, well... Yeah. This isn't so bad. But at the time... And there, there is... There is some harsh stuff in some of those Death Wish films. And then for canon films to come out and go... Okay... You know, and, and they they were, like, they also made Lady Chatterley's Lover and Bolero. Like, Canon Films is not known for, you know, rinky-dink Saturday morning cartoons turned into movies. And all of a sudden, they're like, and now we're going to give you a Dolph Lundgren as, as He-Man. And you're going to buy it from the company that 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 trotted Bo Derek naked on the screen for God knows how long. Like, really? Like, really? <laughs> That's that is literally like Quentin Tarantino like making a Barney movie.
1: Ooh, ooh, but can I share that there is a connection between Dolph Lundgren and Quentin Tarantino? In 1987, also, you know, Dolph was a busy man in that year. Mm-hmm. He made a workout video called Maximum. Hold on, let me find it.
0: If you found a Dolph Lundgren, okay. Quentin Tarantino connection, I'm I am fascinated now. In
1: 1987, he did a workout video called Maximum Potential, where Quentin Tarantino, a young Quentin Tarantino, started his career as a production assistant on that workout video. Oh my God. Bam. I need to,
0: I need to find this video. Someone <laughs> needs know, to find right? me the Maximum Potential Dolph Lundgren workout video that Quentin Tarantino... You know, I didn't, uh, what?
1: I mean, it's not like he started, I don't know, like knocking people off with a kettlebell or something. I mean, he was a production assistant. He didn't write it, you know, didn't direct it, but a nice little.
0: And speaking of workout videos, by the way, um, getting back to James Tolback, um, tell me Boss Rutan wouldn't have played that role perfectly.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: (laughs) Boss, boss, you know, diggity-diggity-dang, boss rooting. Yep. (laughs) Oh, God. We need that to happen now. Okay, so let's talk about, you know, and I'm going to finger quote this for all the people listening, the plot. Okay, so you start your film. You literally start your film, Grey Skull Has Fallen. How do you not start actually showing the battle? Like, it's like... They show the sorceress from behind the scene looking out from Castle Skull, Go to titles, and then all of a sudden, Skeletor has Skull. When did that happen? <laughs> like when did that? Like how? Like they're showing this wide shot of Skull, and there's like all these fires all over the place, and and the, the the discount stormtroopers are walking around. Like some of them are like small, like.
1: What? Well, that would be the prequel that, you know, going by the Star Wars, um, I don't know, um, there's a word. (laughs) Oh,
0: oh, there's a word for the Star Wars prequels. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Although I will say, Masters of the Universe is definitely better than The Phantom Menace. (laughs) (laughs) history will prove me right on that one okay
1: going by the star wars story arc of like you know numbers and sequence doesn't really matter it's the quentin tarantino rule
2: Mm -hmm. again
1: you know
0: (laughs) now a lot has been said about the fact that it's a he-man movie and it spends most of its time on earth and not on eternia Mm -hmm. okay uh and you know the whole You know, following Courtney Cox and, you know, Joe Generic from the 80s kind of thing. You know, following the couple that's going to help them somehow get Grayskull back and save Eternia.
1: Okay, can I just drive the bus here for a second? Okay. So, (laughs) um, picture it. You know, young couple in a graveyard mourning the loss of uh, Courtney Cox's character, Julie's parents. Um, Then they stumble across this strange McGuffin device that um, they found in a cemetery and uh, instead of questioning what it was and should we touch it no 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 let's pick it up and start pushing buttons and see what happens how bad could it be also
0: what is it and should I touch it name of your sex tape
1: (laughs) so then you know um, Julie's boyfriend being a a musician Mm -hmm. you know he decides well he's gonna bring it um, to the high school dance and, and he's he's going to play it in front of the high school. That's what he's mm-hmm. going to do. Um, so then in in pushing series a sequence of buttons, he realizes, oh, this thing also is like, I don't know, a, um, a disco ball. So it glows. <laughs> it not only makes music, but it glows.
0: It's so Japanese.
1: <laughs> At no point did either one of them say, is this a good idea? Should we do this? But no, they bring it the boyfriend brings it to a pawn shop and, you know, start showing it around to different people and, you know,
0: it, Charlie, show, <laughs> the, the only other guy in the it, town
1: shows it to a cop <laughs> or does he? Does he uh, Oh
0: yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, the the, cop, know, the cop sees it. The cop
1: gets it, but even the cop the cop doesn't call for backup or the, you know, SIU to check it out and see what this thing is. No, no, no. Let's start pushing buttons and see what
0: happens. Let, I mean, let's not forget the fact that aside from the fact that there's a bunch of buttons on this thing, you know, it basically looks like the the, the stand for all your fondue forks. Like there's <laughs> a lot of sharp pointy things on this. That's usually a good indicator of no touchy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and at no point did, uh, you know, Detective, you um,
2: Lundgren, er, yep. Yeah. Um
1: Yeah. At no point did he, you know, decide that maybe this should be, be a dangerous weapon, you know, possibly. Yeah.
0: Like um, if, if it looks like you can skewer the neighborhood on it, <laughs> even if it makes music and blinky lights, you can still skewer the neighborhood with it. But getting back to the idea of like, you know, you know, Eter- Eternia Harry Potter trio kind of thing being saved by kind of Courtney Cox and, and Rando Boyfriend. um, I actually don't mind that trope. I don't mind that thing of, you know, I don't mind that thing of the the, the humans, you know, basically saving the mystical creatures. And even though it's it's a trope, and I get it, um, but think about how well it's worked. And I'm not going to bring up the Michael Bay Transformers thing, okay? We we are not shy of buffing all over this, but. Getting back to Transformers, the one that traumatized me, um, that's what Spike wiki was, you know, and Sparkplug, you know, Doctor Who fans, you know, it's the companion, you know, and it's not necessarily that, you know, oh, it's it's got to have you know the 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 cute character kind of thing that 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 fans, the human character in movies like this, like in Doctor Who, in. Transformers, the old cartoon series, like in all of these things where the, you know, like the big hero, you know, character comes in and gets saved by the the people who just happen to be there when they crash down to earth kind of thing. That's us. That's the audience. You know, it's not Doctor Who's story. It's our story as seen through the companions. Right. So we are Courtney Cox and a really horrible 80s keyboardist. Okay, we are supposed to be those characters. So I don't mind that trope. Um and I don't I don't even mind the fact that, you know, it's one of the things where he just happens to be a keyboardist and this thing makes music and that's how it opens up the portal to attorney kind of thing. I don't mind like the music as a way to communicate with whatever. I mean that was Close Encounters of the Third Kind.
1: Okay, but I do have to ask, what is your take on um the humans? knowing or seemingly know more about this unique device than the actual inventor itself and well
0: let's be honest everyone knew more about this thing than Gwildor
1: Gwildor seemed to I don't know have seen it for the first time uh but he created it what is up with
0: that Gwildor <laughs> using you know the 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 key was basically like you know the 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 physical manifestation of an infinite number of monkeys trying to type out Shakespeare. You know? And or like
1: Groot. Don't touch that button. I love Groot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, but I mean, Evil Lynn's got it, she's got to figure it out, right? These guys figure it out. I'm just gonna make a random note kind of thing, and all of a sudden the sparkly lights come on and I haven't skewered anybody. We're okay there. You know, and, and you would figure that Gildor, who made the device. Would be the only one to know how it works. <laughs> and yet somehow everyone can make it work, and the guy who made it can't. That's how Terminator happened. That, that's how <laughs> Skynet came to be. And this was another one of those movies. And we talked about this in the Mac and Me episode um, of movies calling their shot at the end of the movie for a sequel. You know, Frank Langella coming up from the, the bubbling water saying, I'll be back.
1: Narrator voice. They, they weren't. never came back. There
0: was a script, though. Yes. There was a script. It was supposed to be Masters of the Universe 2 Cyborg.
1: Well, hard to do a Masters of the Universe without a He-Man.
0: They had they had and- one cast, though. It was like, and I saw the picture of the guy. Like, he, he was, he looked a lot like Dolph Lundgren, right? And he was a professional surfer. So it was one of those things where, okay, so he's lost this accent and- you know, if Elizabeth Olsen can lose her accent through the through the MCU, then so can He Man. But of course, the movie never happened. But the script got reworked and made into Cyborg, starring Jean Claude Van Damme. And of course, Jean Claude Van Damme in the eighties was was it.
1: And it was also a great repurposing of the wardrobe and the costuming mm-hmm. that uh, that they invested. And can we just talk about that for a second? I know you're going to get there and eventually ask me, but I, I, I can't even wait. I got to tell you.
0: Uh, can go I for tell it. you? Go for it.
1: My MVP of the entire movie. Oh,
0: you're going to go there already. Uh, can I not? Am well, I not there? Well, well, you already broke the internet by saying the Masters <laughs> of the Universe is better than Star Wars, so let's break the podcast too.
1: <laughs> okay, I have to have to talk about the costumes. Yes. I mean, like, okay, the costumes, the, um, the set design, everything about this movie was exactly in, in, in the live action world was exactly what I would have pictured watching the animated series. Mm -hmm. I think they did such a fantastic job and made the attention to detail. Um, you know, whereas I'm sure that um, wardrobe departments these days, if you have, you know, a, a, I don't know, a need for a metallic uh, bustier, it would not actually be made with 45 pounds of sheet metal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, just the um, just the attention to detail and everything that they've put into the uh the costuming
0: Mm -hmm. well i mean okay so let's start with the the makeup let's start with the masks and making the aliens and the creatures look as good as they did um and you can really thank michael westmore now michael westmore um star trek fans are already losing their mind because michael westmore of course was the guy behind all the star trek next gen and you know ds9 all that makeup um so he was the 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 you know, the, the basically the makeup consultant. He was the one that kind of helped put together all of the, the mask work and the latex and all that kind of stuff for Skeletor and, you know, his merry band of never going to defeat He-Mans. Um, one of the things I remember, I remember an interview with Michael Westmore, and he talked about uh, the art of making a, a, a mask or an alien work. In TV or or film, and it was about the eyes. And that was the that was one thing you could really see is that, you know, as much as you want to joke about the fact that the mouths didn't really move that much when they were talking, which made the ADR look like like a bad Godzilla movie, the eyes, the eyes were always spot on. You know? Oh, the
1: eyes creeped me out. Mm-hmm. I could not break eye contact. With Skeletor. hmm I was just, like, fascinated at... Because you have a very intricate, very detailed skeleton mask or facial uh, skeleton features. And then the eyes that are moving underneath it all. Yeah. And now, even Gwildor's eyes.
0: Oh, and again, that was the thing. As much as, uh, again, the mouth didn't move that much... Right. The eyes really told the story. You know, uh, if the eye, if you can connect with the eyes, you know, then you can connect with the motive of the character. And that worked out well. Um, Funny thing about that Skeletor mask, though. It's all the light of day again. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because if, you know, on Star Trek, the next generation and DS9, Worf would go and fight this skull faced alien in the holodeck. He's fighting Skeletor. He literally is, you now have a Masters of the Universe Star Trek crossover because Worf is fighting Skeletor in a holodeck thanks to, you know, Michael Westmore. Um, and yeah, the costumes. There are There is a ton of really good work. Um, I mean, obviously He-Man, like, he's, he's barely dressed in the cartoon. He's barely dressed here, so it kind of works out well. Uh, uh, Man at Arms was well done. One of the ones that really stood out to me and you're never really going to get the, you know, I mean, yeah, Captain America, it's it's comic perfect, right? Yes, Iron Man is comic perfect, but a lot of that CGI kind of thing. Batman is Batman kind of thing. So it's not. But when you're dealing with a lot of characters from comics or cartoons coming over to movie you're you're kind of expecting a little bit of wiggle room as far as the original costume. You know, it's not as drastic as the X-Men going from the, you know, bright yellow Wolverine to just wearing all black and kind of making fun of the yellow spandex and X-Men. But the Sorceress, you know, if you think about that costume in the cartoon with like the bird helmet and the wings and all that, it might be a little bit out there, but I thought what they did with with her costume with the sources of costume i thought it looked great
1: oh it was brilliant mm-hmm. it was it was i think it was absolutely perfect
0: i think there's only one costume that kind of stood out with me as not exactly you know what it could have been or it's like we spend all the money on the other ones and uh let's just make tila look like she came from aerobics class because because it kinda does. I mean, headband aside like, because yes, the, the headband is there, but she kind of looks like she came out of an aerobics class with, with that outfit. It works, I think, in in relation to Man at Arms, because it is a bit more subdued colors. Um, but it's very much like yeah, it's it's eighties. 80s. It's eighties and and yeah.
1: <laughs> it is, but I mean, I think the aerobic chic look was Pretty much. I mean, remember in um, like the Wanda episode where um, Agnes showed up in her workout wear? Like that's just that's kind of how you dress. With the leg warmers
0: and headband.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So that that explains Tila. It was Agatha all along. Ah. Ah. Multiverse. Um, But you're right about the set design, though. Um, And I think one of the things that really got to me about the Castle Grey Skull Throne Room set is that it reminded me of the 1980 Flash Gordon film because and again as camp as that was and by the way that's another movie where the where the villain made that movie cuz Max von Sydow is Ming the Merciless like chef's kiss casting right there but the throne room Ming's throne room was lavish and colorful and detailed and i don't care if flash gordon is you know wearing a tight t-shirt kind of thing that you know and you know like yeah I, i'm quarterback for the new york Ch-. i don't care you're in ming's throne room and ming's throne room looks awesome you're in castle grayskull castle grayskull looks awesome it was huge it was a hu- they, they knocked down a wall in the studio to make the set bigger yeah that 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 if you want to know where the 22 million dollars for the budget went to, now you know. It was the costumes, it was the it was the makeup and gr- making *Grayskull* Skull look awesome, which which of course led to a lot of, you know, good space to do good cinematography and good directing.
1: Yet I was really surprised to find that it was only about 2 million spent on costumes. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Out of the 22 million budget, so like, where did the rest? Of it I, go? I do like,
0: wonder if a lot of those, you know, those pieces and whatnot, um, kind of came from like previous productions and whatnot. Like, if they repurposed a lot of it, or if it's one of those things where it's like, you know, work on spec and work, do what you can kind of thing. Like, we, we don't know all of kind of what into the making of Masters of the Universe, you know, and that's you know. That's a credit to the people working on the film, you know, despite having to deal with, you know, the limitations of the budget and, you know, what was behind the scenes of making Masters of the Universe. Yes.
1: And that is, in fact, the behind the scenes that I want to see. Mm-hmm. Like, I I am just, I was so taken with how the movie looked visually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it draws back to my earlier statement about Star Wars is that we do have that uh, we have that um, video archive of the behind the scenes, the making of Star Wars, everything that they did to go into the look of it. But I think I was just so taken with the creation of Castle Skull, the wardrobe, um, the costumes
0: just won me over. Can we also point out something here? And this is, this is one of those personal little pet peeves of mine that Masters of the Universe actually corrected. Like... This is where they got it right. And I'm, I'm, I'm calling this out right now. In the cartoon and in the toys, Castle Skull was green. In Masters of the Universe, Castle Greyskull is actually gray. It's, what, it's like one of those things where someone shows you a, a blue circle and on it is written orange. Right? The OCD mind sits there and goes, Yeah! <laughs> yeah! Having a gray castle gray skull was visually satisfying to me. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why, but it was. And I, I no more green castle gray skull. That's not going to happen. Not going to happen. But full kudos to Gary Goddard, the director on this one. Um, because of some of the budget limitations when it came to the actual filming of this, there was no B-unit. So you were talking about the cutaways with Dolph Lundgren and whatnot. There was no B unit. So all the close-up prop shots, all the cutaways, that was all Gary Goddard and crew. Like that was all. Normally when you're doing a film, you got the A unit that deals with all the, the dialogue and the main plot points and whatnot. And the B unit then goes out and gets all the cutaways and prop shots. Like basically the stuff that they don't need the main cast on set for. There was no B-unit on this film. So Gary Goddard had to do everything himself. Which then, of course, led to the final fight scene. Because they had pretty much shut down production. They had shut down production, and they had shot everything. But the final fight scene. The final fight scene between He-Man and Skeletor. They didn't have it. They did not have it. And it was wrong because they'd run out of money. They'd run out of money, and they are basically... like. They allowed Gary Goddard to go back and film it, but obviously not with the full crew. Because when you think about that final fight scene, right, there's a lot of people in that throne room throwing down the, the robots. are fighting man at arms and and Tila and everyone, you know, lasers are going back and forth. And then, you know, like he man gets the sword and all is, oh, I have the power. So basically finally gets to say that. And then all of a sudden the lights kind of go dark and you have this like very darkly lit epic fight scene. That was at a necessity. They didn't have a crew for that. was literally Gary Goddard with like, you know, very skeleton crew making that fight scene with what they could on a dark set.
1: But I think there was something magical about that. It's mm-hmm. like, you know what? It, it was a dark scene against good, against evil. You know? He-Man against Skeletor.
0: And I think it's one of those things where it brought an epicness to it. It brought almost like a an otherworldliness to it. It's like one of those if you think about Avengers Endgame, you know, that's a massive fight with a lot of CGI creatures going up against a lot of CGI people and, you know, it's literally It's literally the equivalent of taking a box full of toys and shaking the box around and watch the the toys kind of hit each other. That's basically Avengers Endgame. That's a box full of toys being shaken up to see who falls out of the box last. Um, But here, it's one-on-one. It's He-Man and it's Skeletor. You know, I'm going to make another Transformers reference. It's literally, you might as well just sit there and go, one shall stand, one shall fall. And the fact that it was shot that way with like you know the behind light kind of you know changing color and whatnot and like i i know i know that the people involved in making sure that this film made it to completion like at that point it's one of those things where it's like we're going to do this you know come come hell or high water we are going to do this and it actually i think it elevated it I think if there was a lot going on while He-Man and Skeletor were fighting, it would have taken away from the moment. I think the moment was almost made better by what they had to do to make it happen.
1: I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree completely. Yeah.
0: Now, we were talking about the ending. I want to go back to the very beginning. I want to go back to the very beginning of the movie because, you know, first you get the the, the opening narrator dialogue and then the credit scene. And that Bill Conti theme music.
1: Oh my gosh. Yes. Thank you for mentioning the music because it was perfect.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, you put Bill Conti in, in charge of writing the music and you're not going to have a bad score. And I love the fact that as an 80s film, they didn't feel the need to go out and get a bunch of, you know, bad 80s synth pop kind of ballad type stuff to to fill out a soundtrack just because 80s music.
1: No, but they did take it back. I mean, the use of Purple Haze. Mm -hmm,
0: Exactly. Was,
1: in that scene, it was perfect.
0: Yeah, but I mean, Bill Conti has a way of making, of elevating, just like John Williams did with Star Wars. Another Star Wars reference, just like John Williams did with Star Wars. You know, um, if you think about, you know, at the time that the first Star Wars movie came out, episode four, and how big disco was. Can you imagine Star Wars with a disco soundtrack? I, I know there's <laughs> Star Wars disco music out there. Just take the entire John Williams score out, put disco music in there, and we are not. And, and then, yes, then Masters of the Universe is better than Star Wars. But, <laughs> But the one thing that really kind of caught me on this one. And I know that they were they released Superman 4, the Quest for Peace at the same time. But did the opening credit sequence and the feel of the Bill Conti opening theme, did it not have a Superman vibe to it? Like, like very much a you know a Christopher Reeve era Superman feel. Like yes, Bill Conti put it out there, like, and yes, he man's a heroic character. It did have a superman feel, especially the way the credits were treated. Yeah, Bill Conti just brings so much into this. You can't go wrong with John Williams. You can't go wrong with Hans Zimmer. You can't go wrong with Bill Conti. Um, But let's talk about the editing, okay? Um, Making another Star Wars reference. I had to chuckle the fact, you know, Star Wars of the 80s, um, how Man-at-Arms and Tila, their lasers were blue and green. And all the off-brand stormtroopers that couldn't hit a damn thing, making them more on-brand than off-brand, all the lasers were red. That is straight up Star Wars right there.
1: Not to mention that Skeletor's um, troops reminded me very, very much of little stormtroopers in black costumes, almost like little Darth Vader. Like, like
0: the Death Troopers from Rogue One.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know what? The, the visual special effects were... I think... For the time,
0: there, there really was, good. There was one moment where I sat there and said, that is a brilliant idea. And it's when um, Skeletor forced Lynn to go back to Earth with her minions kind of thing. And they go back to the da- the dark alley where Courtney Cox was swept away by a half-naked man that she all of a sudden trusted because he was half-naked. But she's but got- But they're my friends. <laughs> of course they're your friends. <laughs> because time. Um, but Evelyn had this device where she was scanning the- the the alleyway and she was seeing the fight that happened however long ago it was and that was done very well and i thought this is a brilliant idea for an 80s film this is a brilliant idea and the cg like the 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 post-production wise they nailed that like i don't know how they did. I don't know if they, if they basically had the camera planted and then shot one and then shot the other. And then in post-production kind of blended the two kind of together and, and tweaked the viz of the fight before, you know, afterwards, but it was cool. I thought that was a cool effect. Um, and then even when, uh, they used, uh, the, 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 the cosmic key and you could see the distortion in, in the air, before the portal opened. I'm like, they're they're taking their time with this and they're making the effects believable.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I mean, just let's talk about that moment where Skeletor was like the sky. Yes. Like I thought that was ah, that was like visually Amazing to see. It was very well done.
0: I mean, yes, that did have kind of a Star Wars, you know, holographic, you know, communication kind of feel to it. But again, Star Wars of the 80s. I think this is the most Star Wars references in a a Masters of the Universe podcast I think you're ever going to hear. But according to you, it's better than Star Wars anyway, so... (laughs) breaking the internet I'm, I'm gonna have like hate mail on Twitter and I was like what, do you mean, what does she mean that's better than Star Wars it's, has she ever seen Star Wars have you ever seen the Phantom Menace okay <laughs>
1: we're all entitled to our opinions
0: exactly which big opinion time now because it's gotten to the point so who is your MVP of Masters of the Universe
1: I'm not gonna go with a who but I am going to go with the mullet oh god the mullet <laughs> Uh, Can we go with He-Man's hair?
0: Oh, God. That's so 80s. So 80s. Which is funny because in the cartoon, he didn't have a mullet. He had a bowl cut. Yeah. Which, for the record, that means you had a crush on a cartoon bowl cut. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yep. You have put it out there now. Masters of the Universe is better than Star Wars to you because of your crush on the bowl cut.
1: I would say it would be more the the,
0: the the mullet,
1: the arms and the pecs, but you know, and the mullet. Yeah,
0: you love a mullet. It,
1: it's all about the mullet. <laughs> <laughs> it's that, uh, yeah, that that blonde mullet that definitely was. But even Courtney Cox's, you know, hair at the time, right? Like she had the side bang, she had the the the, the shoulder uh, shoulder length.
0: Courtney Cox just wins no matter Curly what she hair. does. It
1: was it was it was perfect for the time, perfect for the eighties. Her uh her boyfriend had like, you know, the the rocker mullet. The hair. The hair is my MVP.
0: He, yeah, that and that's the thing. Uh the, the boyfriend did very much have that um that eighties keyboardist, you know blonde mullet kind of look. And if you think I'm... He
1: was straight out of hollow notes. If
0: you think I'm joking about the whole (laughs) 80s blonde keyboardist, you go take a look at pictures of Bon Jovi from the 80s. That is David Bryan in movie form. That is literally... He he may as well have just been playing keyboards for Bon Jovi with the device that basically looked like you could skewer the neighborhood. But my MVP... As much as I appreciate the people who made this set, because Castle Grayskull was killer, I can't not give this to Frank Langella as Skeletor and Meg Foster as Evil Lynn. As an evil duo in an 80s film that was brought over from a toy line slash cartoon, they did this so well. They brought so much to this. Again, if you're watching a hero film the villains have to be the better characters and oh my god they were the best characters in this entire film so full kudos to frank langella meg foster for being my mvps for masters of the universe so now that we've gone through all of this the question goes to you in hindsight is masters of the universe not that bad
1: it really wasn't that bad. When when you pitched it, I was concerned. I, <laughs> you, you thought
0: this was revenge for Destiny Turns on the radio.
1: <laughs> well, again, as a child growing up watching the cartoons, growing up playing with the action figures.
0: With your bowl cut crush.
1: With, okay, <laughs> but I just have to ask, right? Because I don't know. Where was Shira.
0: That's a very good question, and I... I'm. I'll be curious. I will be curious if we ever get a Shira solo film, live action Shira film. And if you think I'm going completely off the rails with this one here, if you think that it's a, it's not even in the realm of possibility, I'm going to remind everyone that we had a Red Sonia film. You know, Red Sonia, who was you know in, I think it was Conan the Destroyer i don't think it was conan the barbarian i think it was conan the destroyer and then got her own film starring bridget nielsen um you know speaking of very much bridget nielsen who was ivan drago's wife in rocky 4 right she was red sonia i mean and even you know two decades later we had an electra solo film so i mean i mean as bad as that movie was and i'm sure we'll probably touch on that one somewhere down the road um it's not out of the realm of possibility for us to have a She-Ra live action film. I'd be curious who they would cast as Shira.
1: Wasn't there though an animated series?
0: There, there is an animated series, but I'm talking like an honest to goodness
1: live action live
0: action Shira. I'm, I'm curious who you would cast as Shira.
1: Ooh, okay. Um,
0: You're thinking about it now, aren't you? I
1: am. I am.
0: Like, you've got to pick someone who's able to do that much action and still... Because, again, He-Man, Masters of the Universe, Eternia, She-Ra, it's all very sword and sorcery. So whoever you pick is going to have to kind of be able to pull all that off and not make it look as camp as occasional the 1987, you know, film did. I'd be curious. So for all of our listeners right now, I want you to... Think of this. Who would you cast as a live action She-Ra? And I want you to hit me up at not that bad cast. And the next time that carries on the show, and there will be a next time. Okay. Um, We're going to read out who you think should be a live action She-Ra. So on Twitter at not that bad cast, who is your live action She-Ra? I'm, I'm curious. I think
1: I've got it. I think I've got it. I actually just need to find the actress's name because I could give the role that she's played. But I think I'm going to hold off. I'm, I'm going to keep that little gem... Of information and, and let's just see Jay if uh, if I'm ever invited back after my Star Wars <laughs> after so, my so, that's so, a strong so statement. As, so I as a I, as statement I made a bold as I sift right there.
0: through the Twitter responses of oh dear God how did she say Masters of the Universe was better than Star Wars and I and I filtered all the ones that say you know the Shira <laughs> fan casting kind of thing um, you will definitely come back on the show why because I love you um, <laughs> and no one else can put up with my bad jokes like you can uh so but to our listeners thank you so much for listening to this episode of it's not that bad cast as i mentioned earlier uh if you have a movie that you think needs defending if you have a movie that you think that the only way in hell can we find something that's good about it hit us up at not that bad cast on twitter uh drop the movie let's see what you've got and we're gonna we're gonna go through it and find only the A grades and B movies. I'm Jason. Thank you so much, Carrie, for joining in this time. This has been It's Not That Bad. Take care.